Our sermon text is John chapter 1. We'll take the first two verses and toward the end grab the same theme from verse 15. As if hearing these glorious truths for the first time, though no doubt well-trodden territory for many of you, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Three times. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Second time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Third and finally, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit will make us right now and throughout this meditation today like the Queen of Sheba before Solomon in the Old Testament, that you would take our breath away by allowing us to behold for ourselves by faith the unsearchable riches of Christ. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Pastor Rick gave us an introduction to the book, the Gospel, according to John. He gave us that purpose statement, which is explicit in chapter 20, which you have already heard quoted today a couple of times, and the whole gospel, all of its verses, all of its passages, everything about it was written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we would have life in His name. So every verse, every syllable, every passage, every chapter aims at that end, and that was a wonderful introduction, but I'd like to just take a moment and introduce you to the human author, really to reacquaint many of you with him. Most of you could give a biography of this man's life, the one God used to write the Gospel of John, even including things that I won't mention, but just for a brief sketch of, of who God inspired to write the words that we're going to consider this morning, just want to remind you that he was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. He was almost certainly the youngest of them, probably a teenager at the time that he was called to be Jesus's disciple. We also know from this letter that he was the beloved disciple. He came from a household that had at least one brother his dad, Zebedee, was a fisherman. His brother, James, who also was called to be one of Jesus' 12 disciples, also a fisherman by trade. He was, as I mentioned, raised as a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, and it was from there that he was called by Jesus to follow him. From that time forward, for about three years, John was a first-hand witness of every miracle and every teaching account that you find in all four Gospels. He saw them 
with his own eyes the miracles, and he heard with his own ears all the teaching of every passage that you hear in all four Gospels. He was part of that privileged inner circle, along with Peter and James, who were invited by the Lord Jesus into a number of special moments that the other disciples, for whatever reason, were not permitted or privileged to experience. That is, for example, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. John stood in that little girl's bedroom when Jesus performed that miracle. He also, as you remember, was invited along with Peter and James, joined soon thereafter by Moses and Elijah of the Old Testament on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And John saw with his own eyes the resplendent glory of Jesus that the Gospel writers tell us outshined the sun. He was the one who reclined upon the shoulder, the chest, probably perhaps hearing the heartbeat of Christ with his own ear through the chest cavity of the Lord Jesus at the Last Supper. John was also within earshot of Jesus' heaving, agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat drops of blood and was, when the Lord Jesus was crucified on the cross, the only remaining disciple who stood there identifying himself as a disciple of Jesus and throwing his arm around Jesus' mother Mary And he was committed by the Lord Jesus from the cross with the care of Jesus' mother Mary for the remainder of her earthly life. Following the resurrection of Jesus, John quickly became a pillar in the New Testament church. He eventually pastored the church at Ephesus prior to his being exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith. And near the end of his long life, many believe he lived to be nearly a hundred years old, he wrote the book of Revelation after he had already penned the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So this man wrote five books of the New Testament. When he set out to write the Gospel of John, which we've just read the opening words of, most believe that he did so about 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Many of you, maybe most of you, are not even 40 years old yet. Imagine seeing the risen Jesus with your own eyes, standing in the room when that Jesus said to Thomas in front of all the other disciples, put your hand in my side, it's me. John stood there when the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1 after Christ had breathed on the apostles. John heard the great commission following the resurrection of Jesus. Now imagine that man meditating for 40 plus years on the reality that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God that every day and every moment of every day, every week, month, year, every decade, for four decades folding one after the other, this man was captured by the truth 
that the Holy Spirit inspired him to present to us in the pages that we're going to devote ourselves to as Grace Church for the next months and years. When he set out to write this account, 21 chapters, he did so with an agenda. We also have an agenda. It's not an ulterior motive, meaning hidden. There's no bait and switch in John. There's, there's no bait and switch here. We're not trying to trick anybody to come to know Jesus. The beautiful thing about John's gospel is that you'll find that you never have to be unsure about why he's writing. If you've never read John's gospel, I could not more highly commend it to you. And if you've read it so many times that you feel like all of its passages are well-trodden territory, I'm sure you already feel like the most novice beginner. The motive that John writes with, he tells to us, is so that you would have eternal life. What a friend. What a gift. Do you have one friend in your life, and I'm not referring to Jesus now, like this? Think of a person's name, male, female, young, old, whether you've known them for a few days or your whole life. Do you have one friend like John who tells you explicitly you don't need to decode their language? They want you to have eternal life. Are you such a friend? John is that kind of friend to us. That's why he wrote his open agenda was so that you would have eternal life, but that life is contingent. Not on what you do and not on what you've done. It's contingent on how you respond to who Jesus is and what he has done. The contingency is simply this, believing. That's not a work, that's not an activity so much as it is an emptiness and a receiving. A not shunning, a not stiff-arming, a not saying no, a glad-hearted, open, filleted before the king of the universe. Yes, yes, I receive you to be for me all that God has promised to those who would rest in you. Your eternal life is totally dependent on whether or not you will believe who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God, and what He has done given His life in your place on the cross for forgiveness and reconciliation with God and entrusting yourself to the risen Jesus for time and eternity. Now just to sum up this introduction about John and why he wrote and how he wrote and what kind of friend he is, I want to tell you something that's also Captain Obvious. John's Gospel is so simple and so profound. This is so Captain Obvious that it can almost go without being said, but I just don't want anybody to get lost from the forest for the trees. One third of his material in these 21 chapters is about who Jesus is. Two-thirds of his material, the vast majority, is about what he came to do. This is what I mean. Two-thirds of the verses in this gospel 
are about the last week of Jesus' life. What a strange way to write a biography of the most important man who's ever lived. To give two-thirds of your material to seven days of his life, but it even gets slower than that. Two chapters are devoted to a slow-motion account of the last 48 hours. And the slowest of those two chapters is devoted to six hours when he hung on the cross. The reason the Gospel of John gives such a disproportionate amount of material, skipping over entire decades of the life of Jesus, the most important person who has ever lived on this earth, skipped over entire decades of his life and slows down to six hours of his life is because that's the point. Don't miss the forest for the trees. The one who takes your breath away in the first third of this gospel is the very one who died for you and rose again in its final chapters. Think about the author of Hebrews for just a moment who begins his epistle concerning Jesus this way. God, after He spoke to our fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, now listen to who who Jesus is, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And this Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of the nature of God and upholds all things by the rhema, the spoken word of His power. He made purification for your sins. That's the Gospel of John. Get your breath taken away by who this Jesus is. I fear that we've gotten so familiar with Jesus that we almost don't know Him at all. So as we come to John's Gospel, my week-by-week prayer is not that you'll dissect these verses, but that you'll be dissected by the One they speak to us about. That time and time again, not that you'll hear these verses, but that you'll pray over them. To have your own heart filleted wide open to the love of God for you whose heart was filleted open to show you His love for you. R.C. Sproul meditating on the Gospel of John said, simply put, John is not interested in being a detached observer or a chronicler of the life of Jesus. He is trying to persuade His readers, Sproul writes, of the truth of Christ so that you might become His disciple too. Are you one of Jesus' disciples? Well, here's our agenda at Grace Church. We want you to be. We desire and pray that you will be and that you would have the joy of life in His name. Well, Nathan mentioned that the title of our sermon series is Life in the Name of Jesus, and that certainly is a worthy one. But this is our third time to go through it, and I just keep confusing people about what we're going to call this thing. So you call it whatever you want to, as long as you're reading verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. But we truncated it. 
believe and live. As we turn our attention today to the first two verses of this Gospel, let me tell you how D.A. Carson described the first 18 verses of John. It's a foyer. It's the entry room into everything else that's contained. In his opening phrase of this entire gospel, John wants us to know and believe something staggering about Jesus. If you don't get stunned again today, maybe for the thousandth time, maybe for the first time, but if you don't get stunned today such that you're staggered back by the reverberation of God's revelation of himself to us in Christ, then I've either failed or you've totally missed it. John wants us to be staggered in the first two verses. He means to punch us in the spiritual gut so that we'll wake up again to the realities of who Jesus truly is. The three things He wants us to see, we can say so simply, but we could spend, and in fact will spend as His people all eternity seeking to mine the depths of the Lord Jesus Christ, number one, is eternal. Number two, is distinct from the Father. And number three, is divine. He is God. Our four points will come straight from the first two verses. Number one, in the beginning was the Word. Number two, in the Word was with God. Number three, in the Word was God. And number four, He was in the beginning with God. And Lord helping me, I'll give three words of application. Number one, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, translated Word, many of you know in verse one, is the Greek word logos, hence our title sermon. Uh, sermon title, the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. This word's only used four times in John's Gospel, and all four are right here in the first chapter, three of which are in the first verse. The fourth reference is in verse 14. John is here asserting that Jesus is something. Now, you may not agree, but you are perfectly entitled to your opinion to be wrong. He is the quintessential revelation of God. Not only is Jesus the Logos, the Word, the speech, not only is Jesus the one who reveals God, that's true, He is the greatest revelation of God. But not only is that true, not only does he reveal God, and not only is he the greatest revelation of God, what John is saying in the opening phrase, not just the opening sentence, but the opening phrase of the first sentence is that Jesus is the revelation of God, he is the greatest revelation of God, but it's beyond that in Logos. He is the greatest possible revelation of God. That's Logos. We could say it another way. If you want to know God, and oh how we pray that you want to know Him more than you want your next breath, more than your next heartbeat. To know and be known by Him. To have an experiential love relationship with God. If you want to know Him, I don't know what other preachers have told you. I don't know what your grandma told you. But I know from John chapter 1 that this is true. You must know Him as He has revealed Himself. And Jesus is that revelation the negative way to say what I just said is if you don't know him through Jesus you don't know him at all Calvin translates this word as I mentioned logos he translates it speech 
Jesus is the ultimate way, God talks to you. Or negatively, apart from knowing God through Jesus, it is not God that you know. Jesus is the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. Taking a different angle than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John begins his gospel not in time, but in eternity. In the beginning. J.C. Ryle helps us observe this verse with humility. Coming to it, not presuming that we'll just figure it out because we're smart people and know how to read. If that's the way you come to your Bible, I commend to you, read the book on your knees. Ryle says, no doubt there are heights and depths in that statement which are far beyond man's understanding. And so what Ryle proceeded to do is write six pages on that phrase, trying to understand it. And after six heart-burning, throw me into the third heaven, cause me to worship Jesus, to have tears well up in my eyes of gratitude and thanks and wonder and praise, to cause my heart to skip a beat, to cause me to be speechless. After six pages of that, Ryle added this line. The truth contained in this sentence is one of the deepest and most mysterious in the whole range of Christian theology. Basically, we don't get it. So let us come humbly to this passage, realizing that we are encountering one in these verses whose life and immensity is beyond our ability to fully understand or articulate. In these opening verses, John is pointing... John's point is not mainly... Here, let's exhaustively understand Jesus together. But rather, let us come to trust that Jesus is the fullest possible revelation of God who we will never fully comprehend. He's incomprehensible. On the next page, J.C. Ryle wrote, in this verse, it's useless to deny that there are deep mysteries in it which man has no mind to comprehend, no language to express. How can there be a plurality in unity, a unity in plurality, three persons in the Trinity and one God in essence? How can Christ be at the same time in the Father as regards unity of the essence and with the Father as regards distinction of his person. These are matters, Ralph says, far beyond our feeble understanding, and he concludes this way, and I love it. Happy are we if we can agree with Bernard's devout remark about this subject. Three things Bernard says. It is rashness to search too far into it. It is piety, that is true biblical devotion, to believe it. It is life eternal to know it, and actually there's a fourth, And we can never have a full comprehension of it until we come to enjoy it. He's not here for you to be studying him like you would in a laboratory in your science class with your little biology kit, poking and prodding at him as if he's some kind of specimen. He's here for you to enjoy him. The first truth John wants his readers to be stunned by is that there is one who has always been in the beginning was the word 
In short, Jesus is eternal. It's our first point. You've all heard this before, I trust. And maybe so many times that we think we need not hear it again. But my question today is, by faith do you embrace this? Because John told us the whole reason he wrote every sentence is so that you would believe. And that you would have life in the name of Jesus. Jesus can save forever precisely for one reason. Because He exists forever. The reason that He can give to you eternal life is because He Himself is eternal. We know John 3.16, but do we know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish. Now here's a literary parallel for you. What kind of perish? Eternal. How do we know so? Because the counter parallel is but have eternal life. How do you get that, John 3.16? Whosoever believes. You get what? Eternal life. In who? The Son of God. The only reason He can export to us eternal life is because He Himself possesses it. But He possesses to such a capacity that He can dispense to all who come to Him by faith without ever being depleted. Arius, the early church heretic, who by the way was in the same congregation as Athanasius, North African man, said, speaking of the Logos, there was once when he was not. If you believe that Jesus hasn't existed forever, I loved you enough to tell you, you cannot be saved and you're going to bust hell wide open. John is asserting In this phrase, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word, the exact opposite of what Arius and every other heretic has assumed about Jesus. There was never a time when He was not. Jesus is eternal. He is the self-revealing God of Isaiah 57.15, which, by the way, is the single longest, one verse, self-description of God. Isaiah 57.15. How does God describe Himself in the first person in His most robust description? He says, I am the high and exalted One who lives forever, whose name is holy. I love the King James translation of that middle phrase, who lives forever. They say, thus says the high and lofty One who inhabits eternity. Let me try to illustrate it for you, knowing that this is going to break down at all sorts of levels. Forever is where Jesus lives. The illustration would go something like this. If if you were to try to send Jesus a piece of mail, you would need to address the envelope to the portals of timelessness, to the recesses of endless eternity. If we just think about it for 10 seconds, smoke will come out of our ears. Think about dwelling on this reality for eternity. The opening phrase, in the beginning, is of course reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is cueing us to another epoch in redemptive history. That God has revealed Himself through the created order and is now revealing Himself through the Logos. John is equating Jesus to Daniel's ancient of days who sits on the eternal throne in Daniel chapter 7. 
John minces no words in structuring his entire gospel account around signs and statements of Jesus. Seven times John structures his material on purpose. He said, if I would write more, in fact, if I would write all the stuff Jesus did, the whole world couldn't contain the books. But I'm giving you this because I want you to believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, so that you would have life in his name. And he no doubt strategically structures his material around seven I am statements of Jesus. Meaning that John is equating Jesus of Nazareth with the eternal God who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3 and elsewhere as the eternal existing one. Jesus would say to the Pharisees, before Abraham was born, I am. Before we go to our second point, let's just consider just one more small moment. In the beginning was the Word. And by consider what I really mean, and I, I have prayed, and I pray it will happen to me and for us all right now and every week we consider this glorious Gospel. When I say consider, what I really mean is right now, look to Jesus by faith. Prayerfully listen. Don't listen with your own power. Listen by the power of the Holy Spirit, which means you're constantly saying, help me to see this, Lord. If this is true, help me to believe this. Okay, now with that in mind, consider Jesus. In the beginning, was. From forever, Jesus has been the Logos. That is, reflecting God perfectly imaging God exactly, revealing God truly, speaking God's reality incessantly. Basil of Caesarea, another early church father who was faithful, like many of his contemporaries, preached and wrote volumes on those three letters, was. In the beginning, was. I'm saying that lots of preachers for the first 400 years of Christianity took those three letters, W-A-S, and wrote volumes and preached sermon after sermon on was. Basil said, those two terms, beginning, was, are like two anchors which the ship of man's soul may safely ride at whatever storms of heresy may come. John begins his gospel here and no doubt carries all the themes from the first 18 verses into the remainder of his gospel. And this theme, the eternality of the Lord Jesus, the second person of the triune God, he picks up again in Jesus' own words in his high priestly prayer in John 17, where the Lord Jesus on the evening before he's crucified prays like this. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is the Colossians 1.17 revelation of God. He is before all things. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is eternal. Number two. In the beginning was the Word. Number two. And the Word was with God. 
In this second phrase, John is telling us that Jesus has from forever been a person, not only eternal, but also distinct from the Father, yet one with Him. With. In this phrase, we're looking at perfect unity and harmony. The eternal fellowship of the Father and the Son is bound up in the word with. The word was with God. The kinship between the Father and the Son, meaning the Spirit-filled koinonia between Father and Son, has from forever been so rich and so delightful that it is altogether impossible for finite minds to parse out where one ends and the other begins. Jesus habitually speaks of the seamless union that He has enjoyed with the Father repeatedly in the Gospel of John. John 10.38 The Father, figure this one out. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. Figure this one out. John 14.10 and 11 Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus' prayer for His people. If you want to know how Jesus prays for you, here you go. That Christians ought to work toward gospel harmony now. You know, a little applicational parentheses here are Christians in our day a little bit divided over various issues oh that we would begin working hard toward unity from a position of absolute certain victory John 17 21 that they may all be one how unified does Jesus want us to be Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The Word was with God. Perfect unity in harmony, as the Athanasian Creed says, not conflating their persons, nor dividing their essence. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. Story time with Pastor Jordan. going to read three statements from J.C. Ryle before we move to our next point. Let us be fully persuaded that the Father and the Son are two distinct persons in the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal, and yet... They are one in substance and inseparably united and undivided. Let us grasp the words of the Athanasian Creed, neither confounding their persons nor dividing their substance. Statement number two. The word was with God means that from all eternity there was a most intimate and ineffable union between the first and second persons of the Blessed Trinity, between Christ the Word and God the Father. And yet, though thus ineffably united, the Word and the Father were from all eternity two distinct persons. It was He 
to whom the Father said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Statement number three. St. John tells us that the Word was with God. The Father and the Word, though two persons, are joined by an ineffable union where God the Father was from all eternity, there also was the Word, even God the Son. Their glory equal, this is the Athanasian Creed, their majesty co-eternal, and yet their Godhead one. This is a great mystery. Happy is he who can receive it as a little child without attempting to explain it. This is the meaning of in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And it's why so many hymn writers have spilled so much ink trying to help us to sing what we believe. Think about this precision crafted line in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of the same essence as the Father. The Word was with God. So He's eternal, number one, and a distinct person from the Father, number two. Number three, John wants us to know, verse one, and the Word was God. I have four quotes to read throughout our little consideration of this glorious statement. The first from J.C. Ryle, a few comments. The second from R.C. Sproul. The third from Sproul. And the fourth from D.A. Carson. Listen to J.C. Ryle. The Word was God. I know I'm doing a lot of reading, but it's like us believing what the doctor says, this is good for you. And the word was God means that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word, was in nature, essence, and substance, very God, and that as the Father is God, so also the Son is God. Now, friends, I'm going to make a few comments. And it couldn't be more blood earnest, sober, serious, and applicable to our day. If you don't get this one right, you run the risk of damnable heresy. Every major religion in the world says stuff about Jesus. They all agree, though, in denying his divinity by erasing his eternality. The word was. God. The reason aberrant views of Jesus are incapable of producing eternal life in you and will lead you directly to a life of damnation for eternity is because if you don't embrace his deity, he cannot give to you eternal life. Take, for example, Jehovah's Witness Christology. Quote, Jesus is the first thing God created. Mormon Christology, quote, Jesus is a demigod conceived by other superior gods. Muslim Christology, quote, Jesus is not divine. R.C. Sproul. The first 18 verses of John's Gospel are commonly known as the prologue. No portion of the New Testament captured the imagination and the attention 
of the Christian intellectual community for the first 300 years of the church more than this brief section of John's Gospel. 18 verses, 300 years. Why? In attempting to understand the person of Christ, the early church became virtually preoccupied with the high view of Christ expressed in this prologue, those 18 verses. Why would they be so preoccupied? And why aren't we? Because in their day, there were people saying all kinds of stuff about Jesus. And the same thing's true in our day. What think ye of Christ? In the first 300 years, I've mentioned Arius who regarded Jesus as inferior to God. There were also the Sabellians who espoused a heresy called modalism. They sought to erase the distinctions among the persons of the triune Godhead. They suggested that God was sometimes like Old Testament Father, sometimes Jesus like the Incarnation, and now the Holy Spirit. But that none of them suffered, or pardon me, the Sabellians would say all three of them suffered on the cross. Simultaneously, there were Socians, there were Unitarians who deny the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason they gave themselves to these first 18 verses is because if they embraced any of those aberrant views of Jesus, they would go to hell when they die, and so would everybody who believed it. What about today? The old saying is true, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Over and against every false religion, the Bible says unequivocally, unapologetically, no stuttering, no stammering, the Word was God. That's why R.C. Sproul, concluding the quote I read a moment ago, says this sentence, John 1.1, this sentence, more than any other passage in Scripture, is foundational for the church's confession of the doctrine of the Trinity, the belief that God is one in three persons. There is no inferiority in the Word of God in the Word to God the Father. Ryle says the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is all one. Before we leave this third point to go to our final, I'm always trying to do a diatribe. I don't ever presume to do that well. Diatribe means answer the accusation of the opponent before they ask it. But if a Jehovah's Witness friend was here today, they would say, everything you said is, is accurate about what we say and see about Jesus from our understanding of Scripture, they would just say, you got a bad translation. They would say that John chapter 1, verse 1 is supposed to read, and the word was a God. Because in the Greek, there's no definite article before the noun. The word was God. Therefore, you would translate it with an indefinite article. The word was a God. And I would say in love, not snarky, not trying to be you know, intellectually superior. I would say in love, that's lazy translation work. Because in the same gospel, John's gospel, there are many instances where that same definite article is missing and everybody agrees that the noun demands the definite article. The same chapter, John 1.49, you are the king of Israel. John 8.39, John 17.17, 17, the same construction is just littered across the New Testament. Romans 14.17, Galatians 4.25, Revelation 1.20. The point stands, John meant for us to understand the Logos he's speaking about is divine. 
And then D.A. Carson, he's a nerd. The, the greatest nerd in the kingdom is how I describe him. If John had included the article, the Logos, he would have been saying something untrue. He, he would have been, Carson says, he would have been so identifying the Word with God that no divine being could exist apart from the Word, but the Word Himself does not make up the entire Godhead. Nevertheless, the divinity that belongs to the rest of the Godhead, Father and Spirit, belongs also to the Word. What a precise way for the Holy Spirit to reveal the Lord Jesus to us. And the Word was God. Fourth and finally, he was in the beginning with God. This is verse 2. It's really a repetition of the middle phrase of verse 1. He was in the beginning with God. Now we have personal pronouns. We're not talking about an abstract logos. We're talking about a he. Altos ein arche prostantheon. Altos, that one, him. This phrase reiterates the point from the middle clause of verse 1. It's essential. It is essential to true salvation to see Jesus and to embrace him by faith as consubstantial with the Father. That means of the same substance and essence with the Father from eternity. Isn't this what Jesus speaks about to his closest friends? John chapter 14. Philip says, show us the Father and that's enough for us and you know the answer. Jesus says, oh Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The New Testament apostles were so captured by Jesus that almost all they do, I know I'm going to be accused of being a great reductionist here and it may be an accurate accusation, but, but I'll let it stand. I think it's accurate. Almost all the New Testament authors do is grab you by your collar and pull you face to face with Jesus and not let you go until you agree with what they say about him. Colossians 2, verse 9 In him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Romans 9, one of the most mind boggling chapters in the whole of the Bible, opens this way in verse 5 that Jesus came from the Israelites. They, Paul writes this way, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? The Christ according to the flesh? Who is overall God blessed forever. How about Hebrews 1.8 where the Father shouts from heaven through the pen of the writer of the epistle of Hebrews quoting the Old Testament saying of Jesus, the Father saying of Jesus, the Father saying of Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. There was never a time when Christ was not. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Those hymn writers that I referred to earlier who help us so much speak to us of Him in lines like mighty Christ from time eternal, mighty He man's nature takes. Mighty went on Calvary dying. Mighty death itself he breaks. See his might infinite. King of heaven and earth by right. Well, those three words of application that I mentioned and will be done. John wants every phrase, every sentence, every verse, every paragraph 
to be read in light of his purpose. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in his name. John Barrett said he also wants every sentence, every phrase, every verse, every paragraph, every chapter to be read in light of verse 1. It's why he started here. Barrett wrote, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of John 1, 1 and 2. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. That's why I believe he doesn't repeat Logos the rest of the book. He wants you to know from the first phrase that everything Jesus does, everything Jesus says is the greatest possible revelation of God you could ever receive. So what should you do? Here's our three words of application. Number one, nothing. Nothing. Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, which has become popular for good reason, I, I commend it to you, says in the application, two pages, page 215, what are we to do with this? The answer is, quote, nothing. I love that. In a day when our churches are so inebriated with pride and self-sufficiency, we don't feel weak like we just heard from 2 Corinthians 12. We feel very capable. We're full of self-righteousness. What we do for God better than other people, how we profess to follow Him better than other people, how everybody else has it wrong, we got it all right. In a day when we're drunk on how-to sermons, literally stumbling around, expecting that if we don't have any practical takeaways from sermons, then we've wasted all our time listening to the preacher. I love everything about Dane Ortland's sentence. What are we supposed to do with all this? Nothing. The reason I love it is because after 214 pages of breathtaking beauty of the heart of Christ for us, Dane's book, he says, don't do anything with it. And then he gives us this illustration. To ask, how do I apply this to my life, would be a trivialization of the point. If an Eskimo wins a vacation to a sunny place, he doesn't arrive in his hotel room, step out onto the balcony, and wonder how to apply it to his life. He just enjoys it. He basks. If you want to do something, I commend Psalm 145 verse 3 to you. That you lay your hand over your mouth in worshiping wonder, and if you don't feel it, you pray that God will cause it to be native to your own heart that you would feel the staggering profundity of the voice of God, the logos of God reverberating in your chest as you exclaim in a hushed response, here's Psalm 145.3, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. That's the first thing you do. Worship Him. The second thing, fathom with us the unfathomable. Come fathom with us week after week after week this Jesus and that He's the one that made atonement for us. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. The Bible exists to help us fathom the unfathomable, to know the unknowable, to know the unknowable love of Jesus for the next year or two or three or however long we're in the Gospel of John, all we're going to do Sunday after Sunday for the entire series is say, look at this passage as a window 
through which we may see a particular dimension of the glory of the Lord Jesus. And as you look at Him from this text, the only right response is believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in His name. Maybe grab your John Teleos study that we walked through as a church not long ago. Read the meditations that you wrote from your devotions during those 12 weeks or some of the commentary notes that will help prepare your heart week after week after week for these sermons that we'll seek to enjoy. The third thing, the final thing, believe and live. Believe and live. Believe and live. Believe and live. It's going to be our application every sermon as long as we're in John's Gospel. If you leave without this application, you've missed the entire point. I do pray, and you know, Lord, help me to, to, to see better, to say better. Please erase from everybody's mind, Lord, anything I said that was wrong. Please exalt in everybody's mind and heart anything I said that was right. I hope I understand John way better week after week. And, and I already ask for forgiveness for everything that I don't understand accurately. And I'm saying, yes, let's please seek to have a watertight understanding of every verse. But you can get that and still not love Jesus. You can get that and still not love Jesus. But I know if you love Him, He'll be at the center of everything about everything about everything to you. If you want to get close to Him, prepare to lay your whole marriage on the altar because you're going to get close to your spouse too. Prepare to lay your kids on the altar because you'll have to trust Him for them too. Your career, your relationships, your hardships, every suffering you've been through, all the wrong anybody's ever done to you. If you want Jesus to be at the center, then He's got to be at the center, center of it all. Don't get right understandings of verses and fail to have a love relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's why I said at the beginning, two-thirds of the Gospel of John is devoted to the final week of his life. Because John wants you to know how you can be forgiven of your sin, reconciled to God, and live for His glory. The point of all points of the Gospel of John is that the one he introduces to us in these opening verses is the one who bled and died for the forgiveness of our sins and rose again for our eternal justification. He did that for us. The greatest speech God ever gave. The loudest sermon the Logos ever preached is when he fell completely silent on that Friday afternoon didn't say a word. And the mighty maker bowed his head, revealing to you something so deep about the heart of God. It would have been impossible for us to believe if Jesus himself would have preached ten Bibles full of sermons to tell us it was true. We wouldn't have been able to conceive of, let alone believe, that God so loved the world. That the demonstration of His love is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The loudest sermon, the most eloquent speech that the Logos ever gave us of God is that God is of such a nature that He 
will do what is required to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The loudest sermon, the most eloquent sermon, the most heart-stirring sermon that we will never get over and will hear from endless, for endless eternities is when the Logos went totally silent. I close with this comment from J.C. Ryle. Let us mark what kind of being the Redeemer of mankind must need be in order to provide eternal redemption for sinners. If no one less than the eternal God, the Creator and Preserver of all things, could take away the sin of the world, then sin must be a far more abominable thing in the sight of God than most men ever suppose. The right measure of sin's sinfulness is the dignity of of Him who came into the world to save sinners. If Christ then is so great, sin must indeed be sinful. In ourselves, we are great sinners. But in Jesus Christ, we have a great Savior. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that You've answered in some measure that prayer that we be like the Queen of Sheba, And that you take our breath away with the beauty of Christ in his person and the work of Christ at the cross. Thank you for the risen Jesus. And my prayer, Lord, is clear and simple as I know how to say it, is that every last one of us would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we would have life in his name. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.